All right. Thanks, James. Uh, good afternoon. Good to see all of you. Uh, way to go braving the snow. I almost stayed home myself. Um, but anyway, I had to be here. If you're new or visiting, I want to welcome you to Zoe. Uh, my name's Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and today is kind of an exciting day. It's kind of sad that the weather was not the best, but God's plan. Um, but today's kind of an exciting day because we're starting a new series through the Bible. And that's really what we do here at Zoe every week. Usually our practice is to preach through whole books of the Bible. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get through as much of the Bible as we can. Uh, so far, we've done Ephesians. Actually, we did Philippians before we started, just kind of with a church planning group. But we did Philippians, Ephesians. Then we did Ruth, uh, which was great. Uh, then we did Malachi. And then we spent two and a half years in Matthew. Uh, and our church is only like four something years old. So a lot of our church was spent going through Matthew. And then this year, what we went through was uh, Habakkuk earlier in the year. Uh, which is very timely. And then we just finished up Titus at the end of last year. And today we start something new, and I've kind of kept it a little close to the chest. Some of you know what it is, uh, but I figure it's a little bit more exciting if you don't know what it is. Okay, so anticipate it. It's a little bit more fun. Maybe not. Maybe you hate what I'm doing. Um, but you'll find out today. I did say that today we're starting an Old Testament book, uh, and it's going to take us about two years to finish. So it's going to be the second longest series we've done, Lord willing. So without further ado, I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to Joshua, the book of Joshua. And I'll just say right now, it's not the book of Joshua. Okay, we're starting in the book of Joshua. Joshua's a great book, but we're going to start at the end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. By way of introduction, we're going to begin at the end of another book, Joshua 24. And uh, we'll get a little bit into this chapter, uh, but before we, we do, I want to read one verse from this chapter, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Joshua 24, verse 16. Joshua 24, 16. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Now read a little bit of verse 17. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we acknowledge that you are our king and our Lord, that you are the God of the universe, that you are infinitely greater than we are, and yet you have condescended yourself to us, that you have written us your word, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us truth. And God, as we begin something new in your word, I pray, God, that you would help us to have the proper posture or that we wouldn't stand over your word as if it was a puzzle that we could just break apart and, and piece together and it's fun. And maybe, God, it is an enjoyable thing. We're thankful for that. But God, we want to sit under your word. We want to remember that this is your word, your holy word, that it not only speaks truth to help us understand, but it gives us instructions and commands. It teaches us how to live. It tells us 
your standard for us. So God, I, I pray that you would help us just to be humble, God, to want to learn, to want to be changed and transformed. God, we can't do this on our own. Our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are often hardened. Lord, we wander. We struggle with the flesh. So God, I pray that your spirit would help us, that you would open up our eyes, that you would stir something up inside of us. And I pray, God, that this series, by your grace, would really be a blessing to us, that it would do something in our church and in our lives for your glory. God, ultimately, we know that your word shows us who your son is. It reveals him. So God, I pray that that would be the case in this series and this sermon today. We pray all these things in his name, in the name of Christ, Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Mark 7, verse 6. In the voyage of the Don Treader by C.S. Lewis, one of his chronicles of Narnia, somewhere around the middle of the story, we come across the crew of the Don Treader. They're sailing across the ocean to the end of the world, and they happen upon this island called the Island of the Voices. Now, this island is very strange because it looks like it's been inhabited, but completely deserted. So they're exploring the island, they're looking around, and then they start to hear voices, conversations even. And you might think it's creepy, but actually what's creepiest about it is that the conversations are kind of normal. It's just people talking. And what the crew discovers is that the island belongs to a magician, and the voices that they are hearing are the voices of his servants who kind of accidentally turn themselves invisible and everyone else invisible. So the magician is invisible, they're invisible, and they capture the crew of the Don Treader and they say, here's the deal. Okay, we'll let you go if you go into the magician's house, because they're kind of scared of going in. If you go in, find the magic book, find a spell to turn us visible again, and help us. So they task Lucy, one of the main characters. If you know Narnia, you know Lucy. They tell her that she has to be the one to find that spell So she goes into the house, she finds the book, and in it are spells for everything. Okay, And this is real magic in the world of Narnia. So these are wonderful things. Every page is painted with something amazing, so full of possibility. Spells to make your dreams come true. And that's exactly what she finds. As she's flipping through the pages, she sees all of these different things that she could possibly have. And then she comes to a page that makes her heart stop. As she's flipping through the spell, she comes across a spell to make a person beautiful. And not just beautiful, but the most beautiful person alive. See, Lucy has grown up in the shadow of her older sister, Susan, who's known for her beauty. All her life, she has been compared to Susan unfavorably. She's been the plain sister, the unnoticed one. But now, within her grasp is a real opportunity to change everything. Just one little spell and she will be magically, literally, transported from being the person on the wrong side of comparison to the person on the other side. Now she would be the beauty. Everyone else would be envious of her. It would change her life. Now, there's a lot to this. In fact, I've used this story before. I don't know if any of you guys were here, um, but I actually used this exact same sermon illustration in Matthew. It was two and a half years, okay? It took a lot. Um, Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Any of you guys here during that time? I look around and I, well, James was here. 
okay? But a few people were here. I figured it only, only had like a couple people then anyway, so might as well reuse it. But back then, as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted us to think about what we would wish for. If you were in her shoes, if you had access to a magic book, what would you wish for if you could wish for anything? And the reason is simple, right? If you know the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But today, we're not in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we begin this new series, I want to push this idea a little bit further, a little bit beyond just what you or I would wish for. Not just what you want, but why do you think Lucy, out of all the things that she could have wanted and wished for, why do you think she was so enamored with this beauty spell? Why not genius? Why not riches? Why not be a billionaire, the richest person in Narnia or England or wherever? Why beauty? I think it's somewhat obvious. Lucy knew because of her experience being Susan's sister that in this world, books are judged by their cover all the time. Every day. And when I say Lucy knew, I mean C.S. Lewis knew. And if anything, it's only gotten more so like this since then. Plastic surgery is a ridiculously massive industry. Famous people have full-time publicists. And each of us, because of social media, right, Facebook and Instagram, we're able and even encouraged to put the best version of ourselves out there for the world to see. Even better than our best. We put out only the best moments. We only take pictures in the best lighting. We only show the best angles. And even with all of that, we still slap a filter on top before we post it. Now, someone might say, well, that's the way that the world works. Okay, that's the world. Like, dude, okay, that, this is the church. Okay, bro, like, we in the church, we Christians, we're different. Plus, I'm kind of uh, one of those guys that doesn't even care about what I look like. But here's the thing. It should be different. And yeah, maybe you are someone who doesn't care about what you look like. You guys all look good. Don't worry. But here's the thing. In the church, there are a lot of funny things going on. Right? For example, almost every famous pastor that I've ever seen preach in person or met in real life is tall. Just like how in the world most CEOs are tall. Or the evangelical church has a reputation for being a place where you have to act as if you have it all together even if you don't. Or what about all the scandals that happen among church leaders or just church members? So many times it catches us by surprise. Maybe we're not surprised, but when we looked at their lives, even a week, two weeks earlier, everything seemed on the surface to be fine. Posting Bible verses online. You ask them how they're doing. They said everything's great. Now, nothing sinful about being tall or being discerning about what you share about your personal life. You can post whatever you want on social media. But what I am saying is that the temptation for all of us is to spend our lives and even our spiritual lives just swimming on the surface of things. To focus on reputation over character, to value image over integrity, to view ourselves as others see us on the outside and forget that all of us live quorum Deo before the face of God and he sees not as man sees. 
The book we're, we are going to start today and really in earnest next week is a narrative. It's a story. If you look at the Bible, obviously God loves stories. He loves narrative so much of the Old Testament and even the New Testament is written in story format. And the thing about stories is that they teach us in a different way. They bypass some of our presuppositions about the world and about ourselves and they challenge us to see life with a deeper and different perspective. To look at things differently. In fact, I was reading a secular psychologist kind of randomly a while back, and surprisingly, he echoed this sentiment. He said that he is convinced now after doing all of this therapy that the only thing that really changes people or his only hope is in people carefully studying and applying timeless stories about human nature. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul he said in 1 Corinthians 10:11 about the Old Testament, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, for us, on whom the end of the ages has come. The, book of the, the books of the Old Testament were written not only for them, for Israel and for the people who lived these stories, but for us, the ones who read them that we might learn, that we might have this divine mirror to look into, a way to see ourselves the way that God sees us, who we really are beneath the surface. So all that being said, if you're ready, let's get into the story. Three points today. But for our purposes, we're going to begin this series at a specific point in the story before our book begins. Okay, we're going to start at the end of Joshua, point one. The heading is the ending. We're going to begin at the end. Joshua 24, verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 13, which is kind of a lot, but I want you to get used to this, just reading through bigger portions of Scripture, because we're going to be doing that every week for the next couple of years. Okay, so Joshua 24, verse, verse 1 through 13 Try to pay attention to the flow and get an idea of what's happening here. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I played Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Verse 8. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. 
And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What is going on here? Okay, Joshua, the leader of Israel, God's hand-picked successor to Moses, is near the end. So he gathers all of the people that he has been leading for all this time to himself one final time. And he begins by telling their story. The story of Abraham, a former pagan that God called to himself and made a covenant with, how God was faithful to his family, to his son Isaac, and to his sons Jacob and even Esau. And then he talks about how Jacob's family went down to Egypt, and though he doesn't mention it explicitly, they became slaves to the Egyptians. But God, their God, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, delivered them. And after wandering in the wilderness for a long time, 40 years, the Israelites had, under Joshua, conquered the very land that they were standing on, the land of Canaan. Through all this time, you see a pattern. Israel encounters an obstacle, and God helps them. Over and over and over again, God was with them to give them this land flowing with milk and honey, the land that he had promised so long ago. So you got to understand, this is the setting at the end of this story of Joshua. After centuries of slavery and struggle, after the golden calf, after wandering in the desert, after being too scared to enter the promised land the first time, after all these ups and downs, finally, finally they are here. And you can almost, if this was a movie, you can almost hear the music start to change. Things are wrapping up. This is the happily ever after that Israel has been longing for for centuries, for years. These men and women, including Joshua, you got to understand, they were either born slaves in Egypt where they were born in the wilderness. Their lives, Joshua was born a slave. He spent the best years of his life just wandering in a circle. Now they are here. Striving is all they ever knew, but now, now they are in the promised land by the grace of God. Now they are home. And now, you're probably wondering, where is this all going? What am I talking about? Someone asked me this years ago. I remember I was preaching on pneumatology. Uh, that's like theology of the Holy Spirit. And uh, afterwards, someone came up to me and said, uh, you know, when you were teaching, I kept thinking to myself, where is this going? And, uh, and she was like, yeah, now, I mean, I guess you finished. So, uh, and that was one of my worst sermons of all time. So I don't want to, you know, do that again. I want to let you in on where we're actually going, what the point is. The point is a decision, a decision. You need to know the context, but you got to understand that the point is a decision. Joshua isn't just here to recap the past. He's here to call them to the future. Verse 14, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You might have seen that on someone's, you know, like kitchen cabinet or something like that on the wall in the bathroom. You might even have this in your house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a declaration of a decision. But notice that before this, he calls the people of Israel 
to make a choice. At this crossroads, what will they choose? To serve God or to serve idols? Life or death? Heaven or hell? Faithfulness or disobedience? This is the choice Moses set before them years ago in the wilderness. This is the choice Joshua, the man, set before his people in Joshua 24. And this is the timeless choice that the book of Joshua sets before us now. Choose this day whom you will serve. What's it going to be? Who's it going to be? See, here's the thing. We're a church, right? Most of us here would call ourselves Christian. And that means that we have a testimony. That's kind of Christian speak. We have a story about how God changed our lives, how we became Christians. Years ago, I went to this Christian event. I was 19, um, and I had just been a Christian for about a year. And uh, this event, it it had all these different speakers, um, and it had all these different Christian bands. And I remember Starfield was playing. I don't know if you remember Starfield. We actually sang a song, kind of funny, um, Son of God. Um, But I liked Starfield, so I went. I didn't really know a lot about the speakers or anything, but I knew Starfield. And so I showed up at this event, and Starfield played a couple songs, and then the speaker came out. And he gave kind of a standard, you know, like, are you, are you going to give your life to Christ, young people, message. And I, I was still kind of on fire because I had just become a Christian. So I wasn't like feeling it like maybe some people were. Um, but at the end, what he did was uh, something that, that a lot of pastors do. He, he finished with kind of an emotional charge. And then he said, I want every head bowed. I want every eye closed. So everyone's, you know, like, you know, we're, we're in that moment. And they start playing instrumental music. And he says, some of you have been far from God this past year or whatever, you know. Some of you were really struck by the message of what Jesus did for you. Some of you know that you're not right with Jesus and you need to come to him or whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about, kind of that altar call stuff. And he said, if this is you, I want you to stand up, all right? No one's looking. Every eye is closed. Every head is bowed. I might have looked once because I'm a rebellious sinner in that way, um, but he said, no one's looking, and some people stood up. I didn't stand. Um, and then he said something. So that was pretty textbook and normal. But then he said, and on top of that, okay, if you are standing, if you are really serious about giving your life to Jesus, I want you to let out a holy roar. And I was like, oh, dude, what's going to happen here? He's like, I want you to just scream at the top of your lungs. I was like, I wonder if people are going to do it. And he said, one, two, three, go. And people are like, ah, like people were going crazy around me. I was like covering my ears. People all around me followed him into this holy roar. It was kind of wild. And, you know, I've never experienced anything like that exactly. I've experienced things kind of like that. No roaring, though. But in my lifetime, and I know this for myself, for me, okay, I'll just, I'll just keep it for me. For me, before I became a Christian, there were many times where I became a Christian in exactly that same kind of way. Okay, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Okay, before there was an actual change, there were many times where I felt like I needed to respond to something that was going up in front. There were times where I reprayed the sinner's prayer because I wasn't sure if I was actually saved. There were times where I raised my hand again when the preacher asked if anyone wants to give their life to Christ or rededicate themselves. There were times where I would repeat the motions overall. 
because I wasn't sure if the emotions or the motions, excuse me, had actually worked. Now, Joshua right here, he's calling the people to a decision to follow God. It's not wrong for him to do that. It was a necessary thing in the context of Joshua to renew the covenant. It's not wrong to do altar calls. I think it can be helpful sometimes to call people to faith and repentance and give them a tangible way to respond. But is that all there is to it? Okay, you have a feeling in the moment that maybe something is wrong and you just need to respond and raise your hand or let out a yell and now all of a sudden you're a Christian? Joshua calls them to choose. They say, yes, we choose God. And the funny thing is, if you read through the story, I won't read the whole chapter, but Joshua says, no, you're not. Okay, you don't want to follow God. They say, yeah, we actually do. He says, uh, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical. They say, we really want to. So he says, fine, verse 23. He says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you're really serious, put away the idols then. Let's see it. See, it's not about saying you're going to follow God. It's about actually following him. See, it's easy to say that today is going to be different. It's easy to say you want to live for God. At least it's easier, far easier to say it than to actually do it. It's not that hard to stand when every eye is closed and every head is bowed and a lot of other people are standing and the music is playing. I'll admit it's a little harder to roar but still it's easier to roar than it is to truly live for the Lord for the long haul. And that's what this new series is going to be about. It's not about the momentary decision. Okay, It's not just about you raising your hand and saying, yeah, I'm interested in following Christ. Not to denigrate that, but to move beyond that. It's about what does it take to actually live a life before the God of the universe. Verse 31. And yet, verse 30, 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Hey, again, it's not bad that they made this decision. In fact, for all the days that Joshua was still alive after this, they did serve the Lord and you know, every time I read the Bible, when I just read through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, Joshua 24 always strikes me. I feel like the Bible almost could end on this chapter. You know what I mean? Like, it's almost like I just want to write in in my journaling Bible, and they all lived happily ever after. Because these people, right, who had complained so much in the wilderness, who had been afraid, who hadn't trusted God, who made a golden calf, these people, they said, this time we're going to serve the Lord under the leadership of Joshua. And it says in verse 31 that they actually did it this time. They're in the land of promise. Everything that God has said has come true. They all lived happily ever after because that's what it looks like. Joshua says it's going to be hard. They say, it's okay, we want this. And they do serve God all the days of Joshua. But the reason why I don't actually write and they all lived happily ever after in my Bible is because of this one little statement. It says, all the days of Joshua. And my question actually is, what about after the days of Joshua, and after the days of the elders who lived a little bit longer. And this leads to the second point, the darkness, the darkness. 
Turn with me one page over to the book of Judges. What about after the days of Joshua? Well, we find out what happens on the very next page. Verse 1. After the death of Joshua. You can stop there. But that's what this book is about. After the death of Joshua. Judges is what happens after Joshua is gone. And if you know Judges at all, it's the darkest book in the Bible. In fact, Judges is the kind of book that grabs you by the face and opens up your eyelids by force and makes you look at it. And what I mean by it is the depth of human depravity. It makes you look at how wicked people can be, how cruel, how evil. Judges isn't our book either, but it's a necessary step in the story. And I want you to see the contrast between the happily ever after ending of Joshua and the darkness of Judges. See, it's hard to live for God in real life. You know, I, uh, I met this guy. I'll call him Joe. I met him at church years ago. And a friend of mine had actually emailed me or texted me, and he said, hey, you know, my friend Joe just moved to your area, uh, and he's really struggling with his faith right now. Um, I told him to go to your church, and I said, I have a friend there named Jesse, and, and try to meet him. So as he told him to meet me, I tried to meet him. And Joe came to church, and I talked to him, and right away I could tell that this guy was struggling. Okay, he had grown up going to church, but he was kind of struggling just with doubt, and he didn't really believe it, and just how people were living, and he just wasn't feeling it. Okay, so we were talking, but during those days when he was coming to church, I noticed something about him, okay, while he was struggling deeply, that when he was worshiping, okay, when he was singing, he was super into it, like almost like over the top, like he was trying to like convince himself that this was real. He was trying to, to recapture a feeling of what he felt when he had first become a Christian, quote unquote. He was trying to get back to something. I remember the last time I saw him, uh, I was actually up in front on stage and I was praying. And I don't know why I did this. I opened my eyes, kind of a pattern in me. <laughs> I just have to open my eyes when I'm praying. Um, and I opened my eyes, and I looked at it, and he was looking right at me. And we made eye contact. It was super awkward, and I never saw him again. But it changed. Like, something changed. Like, before, he was, like, trying to, like, recapture th this moment, this feeling. But that day, there was nothing there. Okay, he, he wasn't into it. He didn't believe it. He didn't think that we were talking to God. See, when Joshua wasn't around to lead the people of Israel anymore, when there was pressure from enemies, when the decision was in the rearview mirror, when the nation was older and they had forgotten what God had done in the past, when real life smacked Israel in the face, Judges 2.11, you can read it there in your Bible, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They served the Baals. Now, if you just think about it, this is only a few years later. Joshua was already old. It's not like this was an entire generation it was just part of a generation. Just a few years later, so much had changed. The happily ever after moment of Joshua 24 lasted like three pages. See, here's the thing. I've met so many ex-Christians in my life. I don't know if you have. You probably have. You probably know some people. Maybe it's your own child. 
Maybe it's a friend, a roommate. Maybe it's an old pastor. I remember, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I was sharing about my old discipler, Alton, who really, uh, he didn't fall away or anything, um, but he was such a blessing in my life. But he told me that his discipler, the guy who had invested so much in him, called him one day and said, you know what, I'm not a Christian anymore. Just thought I'd let you know. I met so many ex-Christians and they raised their hand once upon a time. They responded to an altar call. They had made a decision. They had called themselves themselves by Christ's name. But now there is nothing about their lives that's really Christian anymore. What happened? How could this be? And even, you know, on a lesser scale, why is it that so many Christians have lost their fire? You know what I mean? Like maybe when you were a teenager, you were on fire for Christ. You were telling everyone about your faith. You were reading the Bible every day. You were excited about church. But now it's been 20, 30 years, five years. And that fire is just gone. There are other things that are taking up your mental space, your heart space. For a lot of us, I think, it seems like your Christian prime is in the rearview mirror. You're just trying to hold on until the end. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? It's great that Israel followed God in the days of Joshua. God is faithful. The 24th chapter of Joshua is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. But it didn't last. And that's kind of the point. Okay, read with me Judges 2 starting in verse 11 again. You got to see what the Bible is doing here. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they would no, they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and noticed this, and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stories. You can stop there. If you want the book of Judges in a nutshell, that is it. Okay, this cycle of death, as I call it, it's just rinse and repeat. The structure is simple. The people, they drift away from God. So God removes his protection over them. He lets the people, the hostile people around them, their enemies, oppress them. And when they start getting oppressed, they remember, oh yeah, God, and they repent or they try to call out to him for help. And God raises up a judge, usually a military leader, who delivers them. But the second they're delivered, sometimes even before, they start turning away from God again. And the cycle keeps going and going and going. And as verse 19 says, each time they would be even more corrupt than the last time. 
It's a cycle of death. And really, it's a downward spiral of spiritual decline. And you see, you even see this darkness in the judges themselves. The judges get worse and worse and worse. Like, I don't know how many of you have really studied the judges. I know for me, I grew up in church, so I heard a lot of stories from judges. I heard about Gideon and his fleece. I heard about Samson and his superhero power from his long hair. So I kind of like knew a little bit about the judges from kind of a kid's perspective. But if you read through the book, and the story of judges basically follows the major judges, they get worse and worse. Othniel is the first, and he's probably the best, to be honest. It starts off about there, and then you have uh, Ehud. He's the guy who has like the little sword, and he sticks it in like the really fat guy's stomach. If you don't know, you can read it later. You're welcome. And then Deborah, and then we get to Gideon. And the first three are like not too bad. Gideon is where you really start to see that even the leaders are having these problems. He's not very good, right, at anything, really. He's kind of scared. He doesn't trust God. And God uses him. Okay, he's not like the worst fighter. But Gideon is kind of the harbinger of what is to come. Because Jephthah comes and he's a fool. And then Samson, Samson is pretty exciting but if you actually read about who he is, there's almost nothing godly about him. He's promiscuous. He's arrogant. He has no self-control. He's a slave to his own appetites, and it ends up costing him dearly. The cycle keeps repeating and repeating into a downward spiral. And then if this wasn't bad enough, at the very end of the book, the book pans out and just shows us what everything is like. And it's like Israel is on fire spiritually. Okay, the tribes are fighting each other. Some really crazy stuff happens, I don't want to say, because there are some kids here. I honestly feel like some parents here wouldn't like it if Judges was our book, because it's just too rated R. Some terrible, terrible things, some twisted, violent, cruel things happen, and it just shows how far you can come from Joshua 24 to Judges 21. It's crazy. And throughout the book, this refrain is repeated, and we're supposed to remember this. The author says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel didn't have a king, so everyone viewed themselves as their own king. I'm going to do what I want. Judges is the result of that. And that's the problem in, the nut in a nutshell. Everyone did whatever they wanted. One of the more famous and controversial books that's ever been published is this book called Heart of Darkness. You ever read it? Joseph Conrad. I was an English major in college, and I didn't read it, to be honest. Okay, full disclosure. But it's so famous, especially in kind of that world that I was coming from, uh, that I know a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it. I just never read it fully. It's been called the most analyzed and dissected English book ever written by some. And it's very controversial because of how it portrays people. Okay, it's a pretty simple story. It's about this guy named Marlowe, and he starts working for this company. He's a European, um, but he's working for this company that's in the Congo. And he goes down there, and, and he hears that there's a guy that, that, that lives down there from Europe that he wants to meet. His name is Kurtz, and Kurtz is known as this great man, okay, a virtuous man, the best of us. So he goes down there, he's kind of exploring things, he's living, he's working, um, but his goal is to meet Kurtz and kind of connect with him. And throughout the novel, from Marlowe's point of view, we see that people are terrible. Okay, like the, the Europeans who work there, they, they treat the native people of the Congo terribly. 
They work them to death. We see that the native people are very violent against the Europeans. And then Marlowe actually meets Kurtz, and Kurtz is completely, totally different than what he had heard. He's like this twisted, like, weird guy with a Messiah complex. He was known as this great man, but Marlowe sees the truth. His whole reputation is a farce. He is a guy who is mad with power. He wants to establish himself as like a god in this part of the world. He loves being served and obeyed. And even though his health is failing and Marlowe wants to take him back to Europe to recover, he doesn't want it because he's drunk on his power. And Kurtz eventually dies. He leaves Marlowe with his personal documents and Marlowe reads his diary and it's disturbing how this guy has become so evil. And then Marlowe goes home to Europe and the scene change is jarring. Right? He's back home, kind of back in uh, where, you know, it's almost like that was just a dream, but he meets Kurtz's fiance. And she still believes that Kurtz was a great man, a moral, upstanding citizen. She's very sad that he died in the Congo. And Marlowe, who knows the truth, can't bring himself to tell her that her fiancé was a wicked, terrible man who got what he deserved. You know, people hate Heart of Darkness for all sorts of reasons. It's too dark. It's in the title, come on. But they hate it because it portrays people in this negative light. Right, people hate it because it portrays the, neg- the natives uh, negatively. People hate it because it portrays the Europeans negatively. People hate it because it makes Marlowe look bad. It makes Kurtz look bad. The truth is, Conrad's goal was to make everybody look bad. In fact, he once said, the belief in a supernatural source of evil is not necessary. Men alone are quite capable of every wickedness. Now, for the record, okay, I'm not a heretic. I do believe in the devil. I believe in Satan, that he exists. But Conrad was right. Human beings don't really need the help anymore. You know what I mean? We are capable of every wickedness. See, there's something wrong with us, and this is what Judges is about. It's not something that raising your hand can stop. It's not something that an emotional moment at a concert can stop. There's something deeply wrong with us inside. We are sinners. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not even one. It's not an exaggeration. Put yourself in a certain situation and you will see the wickedness that you are capable of. Judges shows us that sin is deep. I'd encourage you to read it if you're of age. Read and look, it's just a brutal look at the depth of human depravity that is within all of us. I mean, this is the kind of book that has really changed my life because I hear people tell me this all the time. I would never do that. You push them, right? And why do you not want to forgive this person? Because how could they, I would never do something like that to my kid or whatever it might be. I would never do that. I never cheat on my wife. When people say that, I don't believe them. Okay? And it's not because of them, but it's because of the Bible. The Bible says that you might do that. I never cheat on my wife. Okay, I mean, I'm glad you don't think it's a good thing to cheat on your wife, but what if there are no consequences? 
What if no one was enforcing anything? What if the church didn't care? What if the law of the land didn't care? What if she would never find out? What if she were horribly disfigured in an accident and it got really bitter about it and started taking it out on you? And there was a beautiful woman at work that was flirting with you all the time, that was really nice to you, started initiating with you. I mean, this is real life, okay? I'm not trying to like go crazy here, but I'm just saying this kind of stuff actually happens pretty regularly. And this is why we look at Joshua and then Judges back to back before we get to our new series because we have to understand that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. I mean, maybe you're struggling in your Christian life. I think a lot of people are, to be honest. Struggling with sin. Maybe you're just not feeling it. Maybe you know that you're kind of hypocritical. You know, like, I know that I've been this way before. I remember I was at this I was serving at this Christian conference, this camp, and they asked me to write an article for their training booklet. And I did write one. It was called like something like The Indispensability of Prayer or something. And I felt pretty good about it. I think it was true what I said, that you need to pray. But guess what? I barely prayed those days. I was just talking to Eric about it, and he was just like, thank God, God is gracious. But it's so easy for us. You know, we can talk the talk, but what about walking the walk? It's about the heart. And the heart is a big problem. It's not about what you look like. It's not about what you say. It's not about what you did in the past, the emotional moment. It's about who we are inside. And biblically, that's what the heart is. It's who we really are. It's our motivations beneath our actions. It's our thoughts behind our words. It's what we love and what we hate, what we value, what despise, what we despise. It's what we truly treasure. It's who we actually are. And God wants your heart. See, this isn't going to be a superficial series. Okay, I do think that you will really enjoy this series. I think that this is a great book to preach. But it's not going to be a superficial series. It's not going to be an easy series. It's going to be a series that's going to get beneath the surface of our lives. It's going to challenge us beyond just making a decision one time or getting a feeling, it's going to challenge us to really consider who we're really about. And therefore, this is the question when it comes to our new series. Because of Joshua and Judges, who sits on the throne of your heart? If you read the final page of Judges, the final verse even, I'll show you. This is how the book This dark book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Who sits on the throne of your hearts? And this leads to the third and final point, the king. The king. We looked at the ending that wasn't really an ending. We looked at the darkness that is in all of us. Now we look to the king that God provides. The book that we're going to be studying is actually two books. We're going to be looking at First and Second Samuel. He thought maybe it was First and Second Kings. I can get why you thought that. First and Second Samuel. And I call. Uh, I kind of go back and forth between calling it a book and books, because Samuel originally was just one book in the Hebrew. Okay, when they translated it into Greek, it didn't fit on one scroll, so they split it up into First and Second Samuel, and they split it up in a good place. So we're going to kind of treat it as two series in one, but really Samuel is one book, and we're doing both. 
And Samuel is the story of Israel's king. And it's a crazy story. There's a lot in Samuel. Some of the greatest stories in the Bible are in this book. And Samuel is really unique because it follows these people basically through their entire lives. I mean, we see some about Moses. We see part of Jesus' life. But with David, with Saul, with Samuel, we basically see everything. Their rise, their fall, ups and downs. We get to listen in on conversations behind closed doors. We're a fly on the wall. We see them in all of their heights of glory, and we see them when they fail. Samuel is an interesting book. There's everything in here. Miracles. There's war. There's friendship. There's politics. Amazing faith. Despicable sin. But through it all, and I'll just give you the quick rundown. Through it all, we see four things. We see God's plan. We see God's priority, God's purpose, and God's promise. Briefly now. Samuel is the story of God's plan and how God is always working to bring about his plan. We talked about appearances. Here's the thing. The way God works oftentimes is surprising. God doesn't work the way that we think he's going to work. The things that he does, the people that he chooses, are not always the people that on the surface look like people that would be chosen. He uses ordinary things like a little conversation here and some lost donkeys over here to change the course of the nation of Israel and really the course of human history because this book matters deeply. For eternity. Oftentimes it appears on the surface that nothing is happening, but Samuel reveals that beneath the surface, God is accomplishing his plan. And you know, this is something we desperately need today. I truly believe this. Because I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I, I talk to people and I go online and I check social media because I hate myself. I go on Twitter. I just love that self-punishment, you know, of forcing myself to look at that. But I read the comments, and I see that people are angry. But what I see beneath that is that Christians not only are angry, but are very, very frightened. I see so much fear. People are afraid of the future, fearful of the world, scared of enemies both within and without. And I'm not saying, and Samuel isn't saying, that there aren't dangerous things that life doesn't get hard, that you don't have to go through the wilderness and suffer sometimes. But what it is saying is that God has a plan through all of this. You know, we preach through the book of Ruth, and Ruth takes place when? During the days of the judges. And you wouldn't even think it, okay, Ruth isn't a judge. She's not a major player. Boaz isn't either. They're just two people, a Moabite and a random guy. They get married. They have a kid. And that kid has a kid. And that kid has a kid. And that kid's name is David. In a little town called Bethlehem, God is always working. You don't know what he's going to do. He is working. Let Samuel be an encouragement. And I hope it is over these next two years, especially as people are so connected to what's going on in the world all the time. And we feel powerless. Maybe we are powerless, but God isn't. He doesn't want us to fear. He wants our faith. He wants us to trust him. And Samuel is about this, God's priority. God's priority isn't for us to take control. God's priority is for us to bring our hearts, 
God's priority is the heart. The people want a king to rule them who will lead them against their enemies. And this has been the cry of every people who had problems. So God gives them Saul, the tallest man in Israel, a good-looking guy, everything on the surface that would make you want to choose him as your leader. But Saul ends up being a disaster as God knew that he would. So God chooses another king. This time, the seventh, eighth, I guess, of a family, just a little kid, really, the shepherd of the sheep. And he chooses him because his heart is different. And we'll get there, don't want to spoil it, but God's priority is the heart. God's priority is the heart. He's looking at your hearts. The internal, not the external. See, here's the thing. Changing the world is not a hard thing for God. Okay, if you've been reading the Bible up to this point, you might see a giant that looks unbeatable. For humans, yeah, but for God, this guy is literally a vapor that is vanishing in that moment, as all human life is. God sees the walls of Jericho. He can just knock them down in an instant. Oh, you're dead? He can bring you back to life. There's no light. He can speak it into existence. None of this is hard. It's easy for God to change circumstances. All your problems, he can make them go away in an instant. So why doesn't he? Because he wants your heart. That's what God wants. See, this is God's purpose. God is willing to allow us to go through hardship in order to get to our hearts. And we see that in David's life very clearly. God is willing to allow his anointed to suffer for years and years and years. Why? Because God is doing something within David. It's deeper than what's going on around David. God's purpose is to get beneath the surface, to get to the heart of things. He doesn't want our raised hands only. No, he wants repentant hearts that are lowly and humble before him. And so we'll see this contrast between Saul and David. We'll see what God means when he says that he wants someone after his own heart. And we'll see how God is doing something in the midst of this story. See, real life isn't a Disney fairy tale. I think David would be the first person to tell you that following God is difficult. But what we see in David is that it's not only possible, but that it's the best way. Now, sometimes I think we get disillusioned with life. Life with God, life under God, life following God. You know, we, we have this big moment where we pledge our life to God. Maybe God helps us overcome some major sin in our life. Maybe he fixes some problems. But then the years go on and we have struggles. We have unanswered prayer requests or it seems that way. God brings difficulty. What we see in David's life is that even if he brings you through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid because he is with you. In the presence of your enemies, God will prepare a table before you. His goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And David has a hard life, but God is with him. And David learns that. And we can learn that through David. We can live for God from the heart. Not by our own strength, but by his grace. And if you stick with Samuel for these next couple of years, if the word of God does its heart surgery on you, I think you'll be shocked at how good God is at changing you, at crafting your character beneath your reputation, at forging integrity despite what your image is, about drawing you to himself to be the person who actually lives deeply for him for the long haul. And lastly, we see God's promise. Because David, uh, because Samuel, excuse me, and Saul aren't perfect, 
We're going to see that right away. And again, spoiler alert, and it might take a little while, but we're going to see that David isn't perfect either. He has a heart after God's own, but this doesn't mean that his heart is wholly true. He has a different heart, but there's still darkness. David will fail. And see, the thing is, at the end of the day, it's not about David at all. David is important. David is the one that points us forward, but he's pointing to a different king. He's the king, but he's not the king of promise. He's not the king of kings. David points us to his greater son, who not only has a different heart, but who can give different hearts. Samuel leads us to Jesus. And we'll see that too. We'll close here. If you go back to Narnia, remember Lucy is standing before the book. And she decides in that moment that she is going to say it. She doesn't care about the promise she made to the crew or to the invisible servants. She wants this and nothing is going to stop her. She's going to do what her heart wants. The spell is right in her face. But then as she looks down to see what the words of the spell are so she can say it, she noticed that the page has changed magically. She sees a picture of a lion there instead, instead of the spell. And the picture gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And she realizes that it isn't just a picture of any old lion. It is a picture of the lion, Aslan, the king. And it shocks her and she quickly turns the page and she finds the right spell and she turns the servants visible again and she forgets about it. But later on at the very end of the book, Lucy figures it out. When it's time to leave Narnia, back to the ordinary world that we live in, she is met by a lamb. And the lamb starts talking to her. But as they're talking, she realizes that the lamb is not what he appears to be. For as she talks to him, he transforms in her eyes into a lion. He is Aslan, the lion and the lamb, the king of kings. And she says she doesn't want to go home. She wants to stay with Aslan. And Aslan tells her that he's there in her world too, that he's in our world. He just called by another name and she must find him there. Now, I don't think I have to tell you what Aslan's other name is. If you don't know, we can talk about it after service. But here's the thing. God isn't like us. He doesn't see like us. He doesn't care about the mere externals like we do. God cares about the heart, about what's inside. He wants your heart, not just your hand. And God wants you to know his heart. And so as we begin this series through Samuel, I encourage you to be surprised to be open to being surprised by who God really is and what God really cares about and what God really loves. I encourage you to be surprised by what he reveals to you about yourself. I think Samuel is one of the clearest mirrors when it comes to human nature in the entire Bible. And I'd encourage you to be surprised at the depth of what God can do. God works in ways that are higher and better and different than our ways. God can get deeper into us than we ever thought possible. God, God wants our hearts. Will you bow your heads with me? Will you bow your heads with me? <clears throat> Let's pray. I'm not going to make you stand up or anything like that. <clears throat> But I want to give you a minute 
just to pray on your own. Just to bring your heart before God. However things are going with you, how your life is, the struggles you have, the concerns. And I encourage you to just bring your heart before the Lord. To ask Him to change you. To reveal who He is to you through His Word. To open your eyes to see None of us deserve to be before you. As sinners, we have rebelled against you. We deserve death and punishment in your wrath, and that is the bad news of the Bible, and yet we cling to the good news that you are gracious and kind and merciful, that in love you sent your Son, the King of Kings, to be a servant that you sent life himself to die on a cross for us. And God, as we think about that, as we think about what you've done, as we consider the gospel and the great salvation that you have worked, God, I pray that as we come before your word these next couple of years, every week, that you would shape us and fashion us and mold us into his image. It's an amazing thing, God, that we can become like the king. That you want to change us, sanctify us and transform us. That you can make us new people. God, I just pray that you would use these stories. I pray that you would use these books powerfully in our church. I pray, God, that we would be totally different on the other side of it. I pray these things for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.